Welcome to the Payments Podium Podcast, hosted by the payments professor himself, Kevin Olson. This podcast discusses the past, present, and the possibilities of the payments industry. Here's the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to today's Payments Podium. And on today's Payments Podium Podcast, I'm the payments professor, and I got to tell you, I have a joy to be able to bring to all of you a lot of knowledge, a lot of history, a lot of understanding of what really has happened over the past decades when it comes to check processing and what's happening now. I was on LinkedIn and I saw one of my connections, Bill Safiki, and he is celebrating his 11th anniversary of his payments consulting business. And I started to look through Bill's profile and what do I see? I see that his career spans back to 1966. So I'd reached out to Bill before and I'd had some discussions on some things that were happening with Canadian items. It turns out the guy's an expert on what's happening with some Canadian items because he's worked there. And then I started talking to him and I learned even more about his experiences and come to find out he had had a 53 year career in electronic payments in check processing. So I had to bring him onto the podcast for all of you to be able to learn and join in the excitement that I get from listening to Bill share what he does. Now, uh, that's enough of me telling you about Bill. Bill, welcome to the Payments Podium. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, yes. Hello, Kevin. And uh, thank you for this opportunity to spend some time with you and your audience. I guess uh, from a little bit of a background of myself, uh, I was born in Philadelphia many, many years ago and uh, actually lived within the city for most of my life. Uh, and I guess over the last 14, 15 years, I've been in the suburban area, uh, most recently known as Garnet Valley, Pennsylvania, just south of Philadelphia. Uh, I have two sons and uh, four grandchildren, uh, all, both of, I mean, all of whom live uh, within a 30-mile radius of me. Oh, wow. That's, that's nice to have family close by. I, I know that's got to be enjoyable. I'm the same way. In fact, my mother's going to be living near me really soon. Um, and and it, it's also interesting, like I said in the opening there, you started your career in 1966. How in the world did you end up in the banking industry back in 1966? Well, uh, 1966 was, was actually the year I graduated high school. But to tell you a little bit about how I wound up getting into banking is during my high school years, uh, I wanted to have a little part-time job to, you know, have some money in my pocket. And I wound up getting a job with a uh, food service uh, business. And each evening from about 6 to 9 p.m., I was serving lunch to the evening or night shift, as they called it, at the, of the check processing workers at the Philadelphia National Bank. So over my, you know, high school years, I got to know the staff and the management and as I was in my senior year, they asked me what I was doing, uh, was going to be doing when I graduated. And I told them I was enrolled in Penn State University in the fall of 66. Uh, but they said, well, would you like a part-time job? So the day after I graduated high school in June of 66, I started first in a part-time role uh, and then moved into a full-time role. Okay, that's, that's an interesting story. I have found over the years when you, you talk to a lot of people about how did you get into electronic banking, not many of them say, oh, I planned on it. You know, I grew up wanting to get into it. It's usually by chance, circumstance, or sometimes even I call it mistake, you end up landing in this industry, but somehow you, you get a passion for it. And how did your passion for it, because I, I know you've got one, they've been around since 66 working in this, from hearing the stories you tell, how did 
that work at the Philadelphia, or Philadelphia National Bank really get you to where you got involved in banking and got more involved with the bank itself? Well, sure. Well, actually, interesting to that point is my enrollment at Penn State University was actually in an architectural design curriculum. But when I got started working at the bank with computers, my, actually my first job was running a reader sorter uh, device that processes checks, uh, bigger devices back then than, than what we think of today. And uh, after a semester at uh, Penn State, I decided to change my curriculum to business management and I switched over to Drexel Evening. At, and it was at that time I went full time at the bank. Uh, but I guess it was, you know, seeing the business side and, you know, for something working with computers at that early point, uh, you know, in its life cycle, in my career, uh, I thought that was why I would, would move, over, move over to the uh, business curriculum. But uh, staying, I guess, with the Philadelphia National Bank then. So I joined in 66 and I did leave in February of 86. So roughly about 20 years that I spent there at the bank. And during the time, Philadelphia National Bank changed its name to Core States Bank. Uh -huh. I believe it was in 1982. Uh, so while I was there, I kind of rose through the bank uh, through the ranks um, from initially a, an early section supervisor. And when I left, I was an assistant vice president. And over the years that I was there, I had my hands in just about everything to do with what we call the day one and the day two processing related to checks. Wait, wait day one and day two processing? What's that mean? Because I know a lot of listeners today don't understand when we use these terms. Sure. A lot of the check processing departments, you say day one or day two, and they go, what, what do you mean by that? Isn't everything just today, right now? Well, day one is, is typically referred to those activities when a check is first presented to the bank. So whether it's the in-clearing items coming in from the Fed or presentments from other banks, as well as the deposited items that a check receives, all the processing of that to then all uh, through to the point of clearing the checks that are drawn on other financial institutions. So it's that processing uh, cycle, if you would, um, as the checks come in on a given day, uh, to when those that are drawn on other financial institutions will be sent for clearing and presentment to them. That's the day one time frame that we all commonly think of. Okay. And the day two time frame then is that which occurs thereafter. So for the on us items that a bank receives on day one, they're going to go through the posting cycle, applying debits and credits to the individual customer's accounts. And as a fallout of some of that posting process uh, is what are known as exception items. These could be items that were non-sufficient funds or the account was closed or some other reasons uh, why the bank was unable to apply um, that transaction to the customer's account. And as a result of the exceptions, uh, we then have return items. So the first part of return items from the exception process are what we know, know as outgoing return items, meaning they're going to leave the paying bank to go back to the bank of first deposit. The other type of return item, which is also part of the day two category, 
would be the items uh, what are known as incoming returns. So these items were, come, or were dishonored by another paying bank and being sent back to, um, I'm sorry, to the, being dishonored by a paying bank and being sent back to the depository bank and for the depository bank then to charge those items back to the depositor or in some cases they can re-clear the items based on certain conditions or rules. So that's a, the, the, so the day two, the majority of it is, is encompassed around the exceptions from posting, the outgoing returns, and then incoming returns. And then the adjustments area, I guess, would typically be day two, but it's day two plus because adjustments do not always occur on the day following uh, their presentment, um, but they kind of get fall into that day two category. So when you were at Philadelphia National Bank, that was one of the things that you did is you managed, you oversaw making sure that day one, the day two stuff took place. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this was when it was all physical paper, right? Oh yeah, that's sure. This was, everything was paper. In fact, uh, back then it was pretty common in the branches that they did not retain the transaction sequence, what we think of as proof of deposit, where uh -huh. the credit is typically followed uh, by the deposited items. And back then, at least in, in a number of banks, uh, where I worked in particularly, the branches, the tellers would have little pigeonholes in front of them, and they would start putting cashed out checks in one bin, uh, on us checks in another bin, um, deposit tickets in a bin by itself. And it made the back office operation of the day one more complex because now instead of settling an entire transaction, you were settling the teller, if you would, back to all of its individual components. Oh, well, okay. Bill, one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on, on the podcast is because I have a lot of listeners that are new to check processing and new to electronic payments overall. And you have so much history, so much information. And this, I know this has got to be the people out there going, okay, I do something like that. It's a little different. How about this? Do you think we could go through and maybe highlight some of the industry changes that we've seen that have spanned really your career? Because, again, you said you started back in the 60s, and you're still doing things that are very relevant with what's happening today. And we like to focus on the payments professor on going through the past, the present, and then the possibilities of what's going to happen in the future. And, and I know you can help us to understand some of that past and what it means today. So could we maybe break it down by some of the decades? Like, for example, when you first started in the 60s, what were the things that you saw happening in check processing? Well, certainly. I guess uh, even before I start the 60s, even though I wasn't part of the 50s, uh, I was still growing up then. I guess the one thing I would like to mention in the latter part of the 50s decade was the introduction of the what's known as the E13B uh, microfont. That's those characters that are at the bottom of the check. Uh, they are of a specific font style. Um, and in addition to that, the uh, industry also then began using micro ink. Micro, by the way, M-I-C-R, stands for Magnetic Ink Character Recognition. 
And uh, that also began in the late 50s, and that's how the automated equipment then was able to be uh, employed to read checks in a faster speed. And, well, and Bill, I got to interrupt you real quick because you said sure. micer, not micker. And I know the industry has argued over that one for a long time. And as an authority on checks, uh, I'm going to go with micer and say, I agree with you since you are the authority on that. So anybody out there wondering if it's micker or micer, we have decided on the payments professor. It is micer. All right. Thank you, Bill. Keep going. Yeah, you're right. That is something that's uh, used either way. Um, just real quick, again, maybe some of your listeners might not understand how this micer works, but the reader sorter devices that have magnetic readers actually have two parts to it. They have the first part, which actually creates an electronic charge as the check is going past the reader so that the iron oxide particles that are in the ink can be energized so that the read portion of the head now can read the electronic signals that come back and it, they come back as different waveforms as you would think of electronic signals and the waveform if it conforms to a matching pattern then tells you what character um, was just read so just a little bit of extra there that maybe some and, people and you say reader sorter uh, again to clarify what you mean is those big i mean almost the size of automobiles machines that every bank and credit union had to be able to process their checks through in that time. Yes, that's correct. And I guess just real quickly over my history, uh, when I first started at the bank, we had general electric reader sorters. We also had general electric computers. Um, those devices were, I think they ran somewhere around 700 documents per minute and were probably 10 to 12 feet in length. Uh, at the bank then, we then brought in IBM 1419 uh, uh, reader sorters attached to mainframe computers now. And then ultimately, and this is, we're still talking about the, uh, uh, well, this is the 60s period right now. Um, but the other thing that, that also existed back in the 60s were some old IBM equipment called IBM 803s. These machines, an individual would sit at it the machine had a 32 pocket drum within it. Uh -huh. So the, the operator would pick up a check, key the amount, and then the operator knew which pocket this check had to go into, would press the button, pocket one to 32, the drum would roll around so that the opening of, for, for the little bin within that drum sat beneath the, the part of the, the, the device that the operator was going to now drop the check into. And that's how they were manually sorting checks back in, even in the, in the 60s, using these IBM 803s. So, so you're telling me it was actually somebody's job to sit there at one of these big machines, and these things are loud too, and they had to look at each check, they had to key in all the amounts, and then they had to pick in the number and press the key for it to go to where it went next. Yep, we think of that as sort patterns today in, in, you know, in our software, but uh, the sort pattern back in those days was in the operator's head, or sometimes they have a cheat sheet you know, at their console there. Oh, I love that sort pattern. So if anybody out there, you hear you know, your department's talking about what's the sort pattern, where did it go, that's where a lot of this originated from. And, and that was all in the 60s? Well, well, how did the check then, if it got sorted into that box, 
where did it go next? I mean, you know, everything now's in an image file. How did that sure. check get from that machine to where it actually got paid? All right, at the end of a period of processing, the operator would open up the side door of this device. It said the device actually sat probably about almost four, four to five feet tall, was probably about uh, at least two feet wide. But anyway, so the operator would then open the side door and out of each one of these 32 pockets, pull the items, pull a listing tape off of the machine and um, because it had a blister tape for every one of the pockets as well. And then they would then create an outgoing cash letter or if it was an internal item to be processed, a general ledger ticket would be used to then you know, create the checks and balances throughout the workflow. But again, as everything was manual, those checks that had to be sent on to another bank or the Federal Reserve for collection would get packaged up, uh, put in bags and um, couriers would then come and take the items to wherever the next destination was. In a lot of cases, they might've been going, you know, to the local fed uh, or even going to the, to the airport for uh, transportation uh, to whatever the sending point would be. You know, I had a call with uh, a customer yesterday and we were talking about, oh, I remember in the day I had times where I was late on my cash letter and I had to jump in the car and drive to the airport to deliver it myself. And there were some younger people in the organization that were on the line and like, you did what? <laughs> so that's, I'm glad that you mentioned, yeah, it was planes, trains, and automobiles is how everything got processed and physically processed. And you said that was in the 60s. Well, what happened in the 70s? Is there any big developments that helped improve check processing that took place then? Yes. Yeah, so we were still, you know, paper-based type operation. But uh, one of the things, and then Philadelphia National Bank was one of the early adopters of image-based wholesale lockbox, a company by the name of Technicron that later became part of TRW, uh, was one of the first, uh, was the first inventor of uh, image-based wholesale lockbox. It was more of an image lift at that time so that it could improve the workflow and facilitate you know, some of the process steps, but it wasn't imaging as we know it today for the clearing and the archival aspect of it. But, but that was a, a big innovation in, in the 70s. Uh, and here's one for you. Uh, effective July 1st of 1978, is when the nine-digit routing number went into effect. You know, prior to that, the routing number in the microline of the check was an eight-digit number comprised of four digits, a dash, and then four more digits. Uh, the dash uh, has long since left the routing number field, but can often be found in the account number field. And I got to tell you sort of an embarrassing story about that implementation. Uh-huh. Uh, as, as we, and we, we were, a, we were a large uh, correspondent clearing bank. So we, you know, we had lots of volume back then. And um, somehow this didn't happen in testing, but in production, the first time we put it in and it was on a Friday night. So we were trying to, you know, reduce risk as much as possible. <laughs> the software slid the microline one digit to the right. No so way. It meant that the high order digit of the amount field, because remember the checks were encoded in the amount at that time, 
was now the last digit of the account number or the check number if it was present in the microline. Well, fortunately, we had the time to recover from that on a Friday night, but what a disaster with having tens of millions of dollars of checks that really weren't. Yeah, so the value of every check that went through that processing cycle, and I'm imagining hundreds of them, was off by one digit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a high order digit got added to the amount field, which normally there would be zeros, right? Okay, and this was again, you're you're physically processing these checks. I mean, you do have some basic computer systems, basic compared to what we use now for sure, that you worked in, but you had to physically go back through every one of those items. Well, what, what we do, so that the the check was encoded properly. Uh-huh. It was just that the outgoing cash letter would have been incorrect because. So we were able to fix the software real quick, but we had to rerun the checks in order to do that. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and I think it's great that you mentioned that because, you know, when we do have problems nowadays, um, a lot of people think, well, how can this happen? Well, it, it's always happened. Software can have issues. And why did we go to the nine digits, though? Why, why didn't we just stick with the eight? What, what caused the reason to have that ninth digit? Well, the ninth digit or the rightmost digit of the routing number is what's known as a check digit. And so prior to that, if you had misreads of the eight characters um, when it was only an eight-digit field, you could have been erroneously sending a check to the wrong uh, financial institution. The ninth digit, creating a check digit, meant that an algorithm is used against the first eight digits of the routing number, and the result of that algorithm must be the check digit. If not, you know that you've misread one of the other eight digits. So the, the, to answer your question, the, the purpose was, it, was to improve the accuracy of the read of the routing number so that the check could be uh, distributed and cleared uh, correctly. So it wasn't so much a security control as some people look at it today as much as it was to just make sure that we were reading the routing numbers correctly for processing purposes. Well, yes, but I guess you would also say that it would be a security in the event that someone was creating a fraudulent check and didn't understand the algorithm. Uh, they could have created a check that would not pass the check digit routine and therefore could be caught uh, as a fraudulent check. Oh, okay. Cool. All right. So that's a lot so far that's happened in the 60s, that's happened in the 70s. <clears throat> What happened next? So what's, what, what's the next big thing that happens after we get a nine-digit routing number? Well, let me just touch on two more aspects of the 70s that might be important to understand. Okay. Uh, the Federal Reserve introduced, at that time, in the 70s, what was known as Regional Check Processing Centers. The acronym RCPC uh, was you know, typically associated with that. And the purpose for this was to expedite check clearing. Um, I think, you know, your audience might be aware that there's 12 Federal Reserve districts Mm -hmm. and within each district, uh, there was initially one processing center. The RCPC concept introduced additional uh, processing centers within the district. Now, actually, the, the third Federal Reserve District, which is headquartered in Philadelphia, was the only one of the districts that only had one processing center. Uh, but all the other districts had at least two. Some of them, I believe, had four 
uh, maybe even one had a fifth. And again, it had to do with the geographic expanse uh, of a particular district. But, but that was one of the changes that came about in the 70s um, to help, again, in the overall. Do we still have those? Well, with the changes that have occurred with imaging, there's really now, even though there's still 12 Federal Reserve districts, there's really only one Federal Reserve processing office. So all the electronics, uh, meaning the check images that flow, are really flowing through one processing center now. But the settlement still occurs at the district levels because of where the individual banks maintain their accounts. And even for return items, there's only uh, one place uh, where that occurs. And I, I mention return items because even in today's uh, age of using check images, and we've been doing it now for, what, at least 15 years, uh, there are still some return items that move as paper uh, going through the U.S. mail or overnight delivery. Uh, it's very minimal, but there are still some of those paper return items. Wow. And I guess, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. I'm just, that, it's so fascinating. And I guess one other thing in the 70s then was the introduction of uh, ACH associations. Um, and, and that then led to the formation of NACHA, N-A-C-H-A, the National Automated Clearinghouse Association. And that was initially established for uh, payroll deposits, automatic payroll deposits, uh, and its expansion over the years has included other types of electronic payments, including cross-border payments. Uh, and then I'll, you know, I guess we could talk a little bit about in the in the upcoming um, time frame or the following time frames uh, how the ACH environment has taken paper checks and converted them to an ACH transaction. Yeah, it is great to see what Notch has done with electronic payments. I have to agree. So it, it, it's, it, it is interesting to see that, yeah, they've been around since the 1970s. And I like how you even stated they started off doing more with just direct deposit of payrolls, but greatly expanded out of that. Yes, definitely. So what happened next then? I mean, after getting Notcha, getting the, uh, the nine-digit routing number, can you give us some highlights of the 80s? Before we, it looks like we're going to run out of time on this. I'm going to have to have you back for another episode. But before we let you go on this episode, tell me, what, what are the highlights of the 80s? Okay, in the 80s, um, one of the big things from the Federal Reserve point of view was the introduction of the Monetary Control Act. And, and what this did to the industry is it, it brought about Fed pricing. That uh, is a bit of, I guess, a, an angst to a lot of the commercial banks. Uh, it therefore brought about competitive competitive offerings from the Federal Reserve, and this led to a heightening of correspondent banking. And then let me describe correspondent banking. Okay. A commercial bank who provides services, check clearing and settlement services, to other financial institutions is typically referred to as a correspondent bank. So where some banks, smaller banks, might take all their items and send them to the Federal Reserve Bank for clearing. Others might use another commercial bank. And just back to my own example, the Philadelphia National Bank, back in its day, was one of the largest correspondent banks in the U.S. In fact, on an average night, 
we were processing about a million uh, deposited checks from other banks. And we've actually had peaked up to 2 million at uh, some points on a Monday night. So it was a lot of paper volume uh, that our bank, the Philadelphia National Bank, Core States Bank, uh, was clearing, were clearing checks for uh, other financial institutions. So um, somewhat or also from the Federal Reserve Bank, uh, introduced, the, introduced the Expedited Funds Availability Act. Oh, that was a big deal. Can you tell us what that meant to the actual industry? Because I know that one people don't even realize still affects us today. Right. And it, its main purpose was to uh, still provide protection to the depository bank uh, for risk associated with you know, a bad deposited item. But it then put some controls on the length of time. Uh, although it, even though it provided some, you know, controls on how long a check can be held based on where it was be, to be presented or drawn on, it did still though have an opening that allowed a bank that said, well, you know, if you have a customer who's only been with you six months, let's say, you know, you can extend a hold on deposited items. It, so it gave latitude, even though it provided some control over the length of time. It was, it was, you know, I guess historically you hear stories of people making deposits and having to wait 10, 12 days before they have use of their money. So that was the, the purpose of the Expedited uh, Funds Availability Act. And one other old thing that happened in the 80s, that, or I guess I should, should say that ended in the 80s, uh -huh. something known as a non-par check. A what? <laughs> non-par. It's N-O-N-P-A-R. Okay. What's a non-par check? I've, I've been around for a couple of decades myself, and I've not heard that term. What's a non-par check? Well, this got started back in the 20s, the 1920s, actually. And, and basically what it did is when you made a deposit of a check, a, a discount fee was applied to that check. So, for example, if you deposited a $100 check, uh, or you, I'm sorry, if, if you went into the branch with a $100 check, you might have only received a deposit, let's say, for $95. And that $5 discount fee is what created this check now as a non-par. You can actually think of this as the early stages of um, introducing, you know, delayed availability on your deposited check, um, getting back to the Expedited Funds Availability Act thing there. Mm -hmm. But uh, interestingly enough, that what started in the 20s didn't get ended until the 80s. Now, there was very few of those items still floating around, but there were some financial institutions, typically very small and in very rural areas that were uh, still, you know, following that practice to some extent. So it meant for a very manual process when, when these were moving from financial institution to financial institution. Well, that is just fascinating. And, and Bill, I hate to say it, but we're actually running out of time. Okay. And we've only made it through a couple of decades. If, if you're good with it, I'd love to bring you on for another episode. And oh, most definitely, Kevin. All right. Well, okay. So all the listeners out there, I'm the payments professor, Kevin Olson. This has been Bill Safiki. He's been got years in experience that he's helping us to understand what's happening when it comes to some of the history of checks and what it means to us 
now and what it means and what we're doing now. You know, hopefully you're getting a lot of understanding with that. We're going to have to close off here in the 80s, but we'll come back in the next episode and we'll start with what happened in the 1990s and get to where we are today. I hope you've all enjoyed this session. You can always email me, kevin at paymentsprofessor.com if you'd like to be on the podcast or if there's somebody you think we should have on or if there's a subject that you would like to have discussed. Class dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Payments Podium Podcast. Check back every Thursday for a conversation with the Payments Professor. This podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Olson and edited by Sam Sue Smith. See you on Thursday.